On today's episode, I have with me my very special guest contributor to MamasPost.com, Mama's dear friend, Debbie Shalafo, certified speech language pathologist and certified energy healer from Starlight Wellness, Long Island, otherwise known as Mama's Speech Guru. She's here with us to talk today about the role of speech language pathologists, how they help and support families of children with challenges when it comes to speech and communication disorders, what they do, how they support you, what the process is like, and all of that good stuff that mamas and papas need to know. So that being said, can you introduce yourself a little bit, Debbie, and share with us some of your work in that space? Yes, I'm a certified speech language pathologist, as Diane just explained, and I've been in the field. I graduated in 2003, and I've been in the field for almost 20 years now, and primarily working with children, and now currently mainly focusing on evaluations and uh, screenings for preschoolers. Wonderful. So in light of the fact that May is Speech and Communication Awareness Month, we at Mama's Post wanted to shine a spotlight and bring some things to sunlight about the the journey as mamas and families when children start to show us some cause for concern and as they grow and develop where there may be some blips on that continuum of development. So can you share with us some of the red flags that parents may be seeing with their children that might give them pause and when to sort of, when to look for help and where to go? I know that was kind of a loaded question, so we can can pick it apart if we need to. It's a good one. There's absolutely some good um, structure I can give uh, parents and ideas of, of how to go if they think their child's having a problem in that communication. Sure. Can you share? Um, let's say uh, there's a brand new mama out there with a child that's, you know, around the one, two year mark, and they're mm-hmm. hearing some language burst, they're hearing some utterances. But something isn't sitting quite right. Something doesn't feel um, as if it's flowing in the way that they hear other family members communicate, some of their cousins, peers, or whoever is in their world. Where would where would a parent begin to sort of take notice of what's typical and what's not? So what are some of those things that they would be seeing? Very good. That's a good question. I myself have personal experience in this uh, regard because my son, he did show signs of a language delay at around that age. So I did, I went through this process myself, and this was before I went back to school for speech. And uh, my son did wind up qualifying for services, and it was um, one of the best things that we ever did for him and for me because I learned what I wanted to do to become a speech pathologist. So I can I can definitely walk through a little bit of uh, that process. Um, so first of all, like you, you were saying, a lot of times you recognize uh, you might recognize that your child isn't. Um, speaking or developing in the same regard as other peers, like between the age of one and two, probably you're one to one and a half. Some children, they develop early and they talk early. So sometimes if you have a, 
If your child has a sibling that was an early talker or a developer, then you might think that your second child or third child you know, might have a delay when in fact it could just be that you know that child has its own um, its own time timing for when it will develop, right? He or she will develop their skills. So like for instance, most children do learn a lot of skills within the age range of twelve and eighteen months, but there are some who take longer to learn a particular skill. But so we have to kind of tease out what is just like a late bloomer and what is a, a true issue. Now, as far as communication goes, there could be delays in many areas, like I said, motor development with walking. Um, but the area of my specialty is communication. So um, within that, speech and language, there are some areas to look at. There could be uh, language delays, which means that they're not that your child might not be producing enough language or like understanding what you're saying or being able to express him or herself properly. And then there can also be the speech sound disorders, articulation disorders. So they might not be able to produce their sounds in an appropriate manner so that people can understand them. Some young children have issues with fluency or stuttering and you might see your child developing their language but then they're not as fluent in their speech and they get trapped in some of their sentences and words and sounds. And some children might have voice disorders. They might have like a hoarse or raspy voice or something of that sort. So there are several areas of the communication to look at. I think that I, what I would really like to sort of touch on is what you had said before. A lot of times uh, communication disorders can be present alongside motor delays alongside some other um, issues where you see your little one struggling and you have to like as you said piece it out parse it out and try to see where related so i think that let's begin at around the two-year mark because from my understanding there's what has been referred to for decades like a language explosion that sort of takes place around um, that 18-month mark into the two-year mark and we start to see some of the uh, the contributions that we've made into the memory bank and the speaking bank <laughs> start coming out so what are some things that that we should be hearing um, if we're not hearing what should give us some pause? And maybe we could speak a little bit to um, what parents can do to help them and to sort of bolster them up at home from there. So let's begin there at a real sure. that, okay. that, that glorious moment where some of the silly things that we've said <laughs> start flying yeah. back out. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, so as in regards to language, um, as, that's as far as uh, the words we produce, the number of words we produce, putting the words together, um, being able to understand what the parents or children around them are speaking, what they're saying. Well, okay, being able to understand language 
Uh, like when the mother or father is giving a direction, being able to throw a direction, or else being able to be understood by others around them. Those are important things that begin to happen when a child is around a year and a half or two years old. So if, say, you don't think that your child is understanding or following even just very, very simple one-step direction, something like that, uh, then that might be something that's a red flag. They are only saying, like, a few words. Like, by two years old, there should be at least 50 words in the vocabulary. <laughs> and by one and a half, they should start to say a single word. Um, so there's no words at all by one and a half. And if they're saying fewer than 50 words by two, that would be a red flag. Not understanding what others say around you. Understanding uh, that kind of comprehension happens between seven months and two years of age. So if your child doesn't uh, like play peekaboo or get your stuff like that, little, uh, you know, games like that where it's interaction and, they, and you can really tell that they're understanding what you're saying, then, then that's a red flag as well. Okay. And if by two years, say, they're just using gestures to communicate or, or like verbalizations like grunts and things like that, that's also another red flag. So the socialization, social skills, like by two or three years, children should be interacting with their peers and they should be starting to play interactively back and forth and talking with other children, just saying one or two words. So that's another thing you might want to look at as well. Um, and I, I just to go a little further, like two and a half to three years, if their children don't have any interest in like drawing or looking at books or things like that, that might also be another thing that points to a possible uh, language issue. Hmm. See, that that's uh, really interesting to me. So you had sort of touched on it a little bit on the earlier end of uh, continuum. The receptive language is greater yeah. than the expressive. Now, receptive language is their understanding. So like you were saying before in your scenario, if a parent or a caregiver that has a rapport and a relationship with that child is asking a simple direction and the child uh, doesn't appear to be sort of present or um, is sort of like searching for what it is that you may be saying that's cause for concern. And I had never actually, um, this is new information for me, so I'd like you to tag a little bit more on that. What you said when they get to be around three years old, if they aren't showing interest in books yes. and in all of those types of things, that can be an indication. And that, I, I think that, you know, those are things that naturally as parents, we seem to, every baby shower is inundated with books. And, you know, we sort of know that reading is um, an important life and learning and academic school um, skill. And if your child is not showing an interest in that, that is something to sort of tune in and pay attention to. So would that... That in and of itself is not everything, but it just gives you pause for concern. Can that be an indication? Exactly. But that can that be an indication. Correct. That could be an indication. And of course, you know, if it's just 
you'd have to look at all of the things that probably wouldn't be the only thing that would be present that would give mm -hmm. a parent concern or cause to look further. There, there, some of the other things that I would think too. Also, I, I didn't mention like being able the social aspect of language, where I did say about playing, talking with other children, also about being able to have eye contact with you. What when you're speaking? That's another sign that you would want to make sure that your child is able to look at you when communicating. So that's another social aspect of language. Uh, but those, the, the problem, like having problems with early reading and writing, not um, liking to draw or look at books. So that could also point to some, you know, educational things too. Well, not just uh, communication. So, but that's like the, maybe that will bring us into what are the things you can do to help facilitate language. So you could just see exposure, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps your child doesn't have the crayons and the paper available to color, or a lot of books in the home, or even like the parents are so busy and they haven't had a chance to read to their child. So, but I could just see an exposure thing at that age, like you were saying, and not a real. Um, you know, issue necessarily. Now, we have other moms that have been generous enough to share with us their journey with their children's speech and communication disorders, two of which are speaking to um, a childhood disorder of speech known as childhood apraxia of speech. Could you touch yeah. a little bit um, for the folks at home on differences, what apraxia of speech is, and the differences between a delay, as in a typical speech delay, you mentioned before, late bloomers, children who everyone develops in their own time, but most children typically develop within a certain window. So can you speak to that, what the differences are between a delay and a disorder? and kind of uh, help to get parents up to speed as to uh, what that looks like. I certainly can. And first, I just want to, again, distinguish the difference between a language disorder and a speech disorder. So what you were just talking about with the apraxia, you're talking to some parents about, that's considered a speech sound disorder. Now, a language disorder was more of what I was talking about with the comprehension and the ability to say the number of words and all that. So language is made up of words that we use to share ideas, right? We use it to get what we want. So that includes the speaking, the understanding, and the reading, and the writing. Okay. So a child with a language disorder may have trouble with one or more of those skills. Now, on the other hand, what you were saying about speech sound disorders, speech is how we say the sounds and words. Um, and it's totally normal for young children to say some words the wrong way. Like some, like there's a particular order that sounds typically develop, and a lot of children, a lot of some of the sounds don't develop till a child is four, five, or even six years old, sometimes seven. Okay. Um, so the signs of a speech sound disorder vary. I'm going to go back to the apraxia. So, uh, so speech sound disorder under that umbrella, there are different types. And what you were saying, like a articulation delay, a speech delay. So there are two types of speech sound disorders. One is articulation disorders, and two are phonemic disorders, or phonological disorders. Okay. So the first one, I think, the one you're talking about, a practice of speech, that's an articulation disorder. 
Okay. And it's a problem making down past a certain age. It's when they're not, like, say, one to two years, children say C, B, and M, they should be able to say mama, papa, baba, you know, and if, say, by two years, they don't have those basic phonemes, then that might be an indication that they have a speech sound disorder, um, an articulation disorder. Okay. And so... But there's a difference between the delay. So when when a child is delayed, they might just be a little later than normal, late bloomer on some of those sounds, but they, they do acquire it in the same order okay. as a typically developing child. So that would be a, a delay. Sometimes people have, uh, children have difficulty producing, physically producing sounds, which can cause them, that would be an actual disorder. So that could be due to either a structural or physical uh, difficulty, like it's a placement of the articulator, the tongue, the, te- the jaw, the teeth, the lips to produce the sound. Like a very common one would be when children use the sound W for R and L. Okay. So it's just a difficulty in producing that R and the L, and they substitute the W. The or L, the plane that's involved in the actual movement to produce a sound that we as adults recognize. So they substitute another um, sound or utterance to be able to... Correct. To mimic what it is that you're asking of them. But in those scenarios, just like you mentioned, you can see that the child is present. You can see because in order to produce the sound, they have to hear to to respond to your request. They have to hear it. They have to comprehend it. And then they have to reproduce it. So if you are seeing any gaps, interruptions, any little blips in that process, then those are things that we need to tune into and try to support. But if in the errors in articulation, like you said, you know that it, it sounds familiar, it sounds close to what you have mentioned or requested of the child. So it looks different when we're talking about they're not producing those utterances and they sound, they do sound distinctly different in a lot of situations. So I think that um, that is helpful for parents to know. And you touched on yeah. phonological, phonological disorders. Phonological disorders. Yes. Yeah. Phonological disorders of speech. You want to talk just a little bit about some of the common ones that we would see, let's say from, um, inf- well, not infancy, from the toddler years to the pre-K years? Yeah, so I'm just have to go in with my notes on that when I want to try that. Where is that? No worries. Wow. I just think that it's um, it's really helpful for parents to sort of, um, when you're seeing things, they give you cause for concern. If you can exactly. hear it and you know what's typical, then you know, okay, I need to pay a little bit closer attention to this. I need to support my child. I need to build up those skills. I need to give them more exposure, like you were saying earlier. And then you just sort of take things very naturally and organically. And then you can sort of each each experience that you offer to that child is going to provide you more insight and information to help you to know what steps to take next. So that's that's the thinking along that vein. But what I have found in my experience working with families, and I'd like you to speak a little bit on that at a later point, we'll revisit it. But when the expectation, when you don't know, let's say you just don't know 
And you have very little frame of reference when you don't know what is typical and what should be happening. And then you measure that against um, sometimes false information, sometimes uh, information that is um, no longer relevant or outdated. And we have this gap between our expectation and where a child realistically is spending their time and their energy and they are actually developing as they should. Um, I I think you create this void in between inappropriate expectation and age appropriate expectation. So we're, we're going to try to go back to that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And when we do, I just want to talk about, um, following your own intuition, like it will just you know, remind me about thinking about trusting your own intuition and not necessarily those around you, the people telling you what shouldn't be happening and also never being afraid to go and ask a professional. And that's just an easy thing to, to help answer a lot of questions and clear up a lot of confusion. So those are things to circle back to as well. Yes, and, and that is, yes, that is one of the most important things. Mothers and primary caregivers and people who spend time develop that rapport. No, no when something doesn't sit right and it just feels, it feels off. And I think that one of the most important things that you just touched on, which we'll speak about it again, but listening to that, listening to that intuition, understand and your child relationship based on trust there's a rapport there's a rhythm and if something seems disrupted or off course or doesn't feel natural and you've tried to look for um you've tried to look to the people in your world for either support validation or guidance and you aren't receiving that and it still feels um still feels off continue to pursue continue to advocate continue to be the voice when your child may or may not have it so getting back to for a little no that was perfectly said yeah the phonological disorder well because you had mentioned childhood attraction speech and then the difference between that and a phonological disorder we already discussed about the, the sound when the children just have difficulty with moving learning placement the articulate later placement and just being a little bit delayed in the productions of sound Chronological disorders and apraxia of speech, um, they're different than what we just basically described. A phonological disorder is a disorder where trouble ha- a child has trouble grasping the speech rules of a given language, okay. as well as the different sounds. So, like, there's different rules of speech and um, patterns of speech. Okay. That we- how we produce sounds, like some sounds are produced in the front of the mouth, some are produced in the back. So different uh, patterns like that. So if um, if a child has a phonological delay or disorder, can you give an example of some words or some things just so that parents yeah. have a like a real life grasp of what it might look like or sound like? Yes. So with a phonological disorder, it's like if your child, this is a pretty common one. Um, it's called, uh, it's, I'm just trying to think of the fronting or backing. It's, um, um, okay. Like it's so it's, it's where, um, there's the sound, um, P. Hold on one second. I'm getting, sorry. So there we go. 
Okay. So when uh, so when a child substitutes a T for a, 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 the the K sound or the C sound, like like cat for cat. Okay. Or it says dog for dog. That's G for D. So it's they're fronting. They're producing the sound in. I, I wanted to find out. I had it right here. So sorry. I wanted to describe that much better. Okay. Let's see. Boy, here we go. Here it is. I got it. All right. So the, the, the phonological disorders can kind of be tricky to spot because it's not it's because kids are supposed to. Um, it's perfectly normal that kids like drop the arms off a car, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but like, oh, no, that's not it. Okay. Where did I just have a good thing for you? But I will get that for you. All right. We, we can wait for a logical one. Yeah, I, I have a good way to describe it, and, and I want to make sure I find it for us mm -hmm. before. But it's when there's patterns of errors in the speech, such as like uh, producing a C for a T or a K for a T and a, a D for a G, like that consists, and they're very consistent, as opposed to something like with apraxia, where the errors are not very consistent. And there's no pattern to it, no rhyme or reason. So, so that's a little bit of the difference there. So it becomes more um, more difficult for the adults and a child with a pro with an apraxia diagnosis to be in rhythm with one another and communicate because it may be present at one time and then not again. Or correct, it seems more random. Where when it's Correct. on a logical disorder or delay, there's familiarity, there's a pattern, there are substitutions and and Correct. kind substitutions. of yep. right, and you can kind of tell that it's it's the way the child is moving, the mouth, the tongue, the jaw, the teeth, the placement of the tongue to be able to produce the sound that's coming out a little um a little unfamiliar or a little odd but it has a pattern of a pattern that we recognize we know that the child is attempting attempting to say dog but it's coming out as gog you know exactly or cat, right. cat etc so those um those typically take a different course in treatment as well so when a child exactly um when a child has, let's say, a phonological disorder or delay, and they are now receiving services, they've gone through the process and they're receiving services, the speech and language pathologist uh, their, uh, treatment course is different, correct? Can you speak a little bit about what the, um, the courses of treatment are um, once a diagnosis has been reached? Well, well this, uh, with a phonological uh, disorder, um, this, uh, Typical language speech therapy does seem to have an effect and work well, and, and you will see progress with the traditional method uh, of teaching that child to learn the differences between the sounds, because that's what happens in a phonological disorder. They don't hear the differences between the sounds, so they cannot distinguish. So you would like, give them a bunch of minimal pairs of, of words that are almost alike okay. and that not 
so that to see if they can distinguish the differences. And if they can't, that's a sign that they might have that inability to hear those unique differences, those slight differences between the T and the D, the D with it, which is just a little bit of a tongue placement, you know, like those types of things. So that is by, by helping them and using those traditional methods, you will see progress. With someone with a propsia who might be misdiagnosed and you're trying to do the traditional therapy, they will not progress with those. So you'll know that then that that's a sign that something else is going on. Right. So as a parent, and when you're trying to sort of distinguish with the knowledge that you have and the understanding you have between a delay and a disorder such as apraxia, they do not, children typically don't meet the milestones. They don't show forward progress. So Correct. with those traditional therapies, so then we would have to, um, it's an indicator. And as I said before, it gives you more information. So... Then you circle back, you change the treatment course, and then you should uh, should again the progress. And yeah, when you match the therapy, watch when you match the treatment course with the actual diagnosis, then you start to see some of the beautiful stuff that comes from that intervention from the therapist. Now, when we're talking about apraxia of speech, at what age can you let the moms uh, and dads out? Be- listeners a little bit about at around what age would you expect to to, to see when, that show when, itself yeah so well a child with a speech is so we were what we were talking about with the other speech sounds disorders which really is like a timing thing whether they're developing the sounds on time or whether they can hear the differences in the sound with other types of speech disorders, this is a motor speech disorder. Okay. And so it's actually neurological in nature. So it's not that the muscles are weak or they don't know how to use the muscles. It's actually about the brain being able to get the signal to the muscles to move in a certain way to create a sound. And you probably would um, really notice these around the age of three. Okay. Um, you might suspect it sooner, but three years old is probably because that's when they're putting you know, more words together and, and you might be able to distinguish it a little better uh, from one of the other disorders we spoke about. Um, so would you like me to tell you a little bit about some of the, the yes. signs to look for? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So where I was saying about the phonological disorder, where there's like patterns of errors and they're pretty consistent, that there might be making certain substitutions or omissions or deletions or uh, additions of sound. So they might substitute sounds pretty consistently, omit the same types of sounds, like for instance, like in consonant blends, they'll, they'll uh, reduce them, like spoon becomes spoon and let's see, trust becomes tough or something. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things where there's a pattern of errors and errors and they're consistent. But with apraxia, they're more, the, the errors in production are inconsistent. I think you said that before, where they might be able to produce a sound or say a word one time and then not another. That can happen. So the one of the signs is where the child does not always say words the same way every time. Mm-hmm. So that's something to look at. Or they might tend to put the stress on the wrong syllable of a word. 
or change the track differently time. And they might distort or change sounds, like distortion of sounds, especially vowels and things like that. They might like prolong them or, or like, like add a different vowel sound, add, a, add additional sounds in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you might notice that they're able to say shorter words more clearly than words. Okay. And there could also be some other problems that they would have outside of speech that um, might also be a red flag, like difficulty with fine motor skills. Okay. Or they could have delayed language, and we spoke a little bit about what language is before. Mm -hmm. And they could have problems with reading and spelling and writing. Right. So those are other things that can coexist with. Yep. With the approximate. Yeah, so a very one, yeah, it's for, the, for a very, very young child. Like I said, three, three is really an easier way to, 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 to start to see the differences. But um, for a very young child, if they don't tour babble as an infant, that could be a cue. Okay. And if their first words are late or they're missing sounds that a typical child would develop. Okay. And where if they only have a few different consonants or vowel sounds, that's also a sign of apraxia. And then they could have a problem combining sounds. Like they could show long pauses between sounds. So okay. that could be another sign. And they could simplify words by replacing difficult sounds with easier ones. Wonderful. Yeah. So those are things that younger children could do. Things to, to be mindful of very early on because we both know that. Earlier, the intervention services the child receives, the better the outcome. So that's a, a large part of why we're trying to put the spotlight on um, speech and hearing communication disorders. Because as you mentioned earlier, off of our recording, you all seem to be having some disruptions, some blips and some communication issues come. Even as adults connecting with one another. So we just really want to do whatever we can to help moms who may be experiencing this, moms and families that are going through this. And along that vein, let's just say that you're, you know, your mom and you're, you're just not hearing things that there is cause for concern. What can you speak a little bit about what are the first steps that a mom could take at the beginning of the journey? If she has concerns, does she start with the pediatrician and then share a little bit about um, community and school district's role in supporting um, the needs of its community members? So definitely I would recommend going to the pediatrician because you do want to rule out if there's a hearing um, any kind of hearing issue, and generally speaking, the pediatrician does do some hearing tests. So definitely go out, check out, and see if there's any fluid in the child's ears, because that could also cause issues with speech and language development. And then also just get your pediatrician's feedback, and they could also um, help to guide you in, in where to go for help. But generally speaking, there is uh, an act that we, we all have have a right, all children have a right 
to um, to get services if they're having um, any kind of an issue developing, um, whether it's early childhood and, and it could be physically um, or educationally or communication with communication. Every child has their right to receive free and appropriate services under the Disabilities Act, IDEA Act, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. E-D-E-A. So that we just have to know as parents how to go in and obtain these services or at least to, to be able to obtain an assessment to see if our child qualifies. Mm-hmm. So if your child is under the age of three, birth to three, there are early intervention services available for them for assessment and treatment. And there's also school age services from three to 25. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, and sorry, can you go circle back to your question so I can focus? Yeah. So then, so there is no, I think you said it earlier, there is no cost associated to the family to receive the evaluation and assessment and then possibly the treatment that would fall under early intervention services or preschool special services if the child is, what's the age for preschool special services? Three, three to three, three starts and, and children can get services up until the free and appropriate services up until the age of 21. Okay. And prior to that, it's known as early intervention services. So it is important for families to know the early intervention services phone numbers within the county with with which they reside so that they can Correct. get free and appropriate services to find out if there is a need or, and should there be one, how to address that need. Um, I, I, I hear so often families just struggling and trying to figure out if their insurance is going to cover this or that. And what if my child does have a delay? Where, where do I go? So that was really, really helpful information. It is free of charge. Yeah, so there's oh, it's free of charge now. Um, there are whether or not your child is experiencing a delay, or whether they'll get services. They'll be always it's always going to be covered the assessment and the evaluation. But depending upon the state or school district or county, there could be limitations on what they um, will. will they require intervention mm-hmm. that they would pay for. Okay. So that there's yeah, there's some strict guidelines, state and local um, and federal regulations that say what requirements uh, must be met. So with early intervention, it's the county that generally you'll have your assessment that goes under and then they will determine if your child um, is falling within a certain, you know, outside of a certain limit okay. of, of communication. But there's always, like you had mentioned, even just getting that evaluation is going to give you information. And then there's always the private, you can get like services that you can get through your insurance and otherwise. But if you're child is in, in if you're recognizing there's an issue with your child and, uh, and their chances are you're going to be able to get services so you know always never hesitate to go and find out even if there's just a small question because that's free 
to get that um, evaluation done, even if your child um, age three. Mm -hmm. and, and now three and up, it goes to the school district, at least in New York, there's a local education agency, usually a school district or division, and their Office of Special Education or Special Services, that's where you would contact the school district that's Office of Special Education or Special Services, and they would direct you in a way to get the proper evaluation. Okay. So just to recap, under three is early intervention services, and that's county-driven within the county that you reside. And preschool special services is 3 to 21, and that's basically district-driven. So you would want right. to contact the uh, local school district within the county, within the community that you live. Um, now, let's let's go okay, forward. So well, just, a, just a little clarification. It's a preschool to school age. Okay. So 3 to 21. So the, it's still preschool, school, and school age children. So yeah, prior, prior to kindergarten. So now let's go forward a couple of steps. Let's say that you have connected you have a three-year-old that's experiencing some difficulties you've contacted the district you've started the process can you speak a little bit kind of very generally about what the process what the steps are and kind of the time frames that parents can look to so that they have some comfort and understanding that knowing that once you make the phone call, then the next step is the eval and about how long that takes. Can you speak to that a little bit since this is what you do? <laughs> I sure can. So I know here in New York and, and where I work, if, if a parent puts in a request for an evaluation, that request has to be honored within a month. That child, from that moment that child, that the parent requests an evaluation, then that has to take place within a month. So that's timely. And then once that evaluation takes place, I believe there is another short time period where you know, they want to get them to have a meeting within a certain time period to determine the services. So it's going to happen within a very short period of time because time is of the essence when children are young. So mm -hmm. children, the parents can rest easy to know that once they put in that request, it's going to happen pretty quickly that they'll get the, the um, assistance that they need. That's very comforting and reassuring. And again, I think that, you know, sort of the keepers of the knowledge and the keepers of the wisdom sometimes um, forget to share. And yeah. I think it creates a little bit of unnecessary angst on the part of parents. But if you know that, as you just mentioned, from the date the, pa the parent makes the phone call, makes the request, the entire process, a county or district has 30 days to respond and set up assessment. Once the assessment has been done with early intervention, the assessments can be done in home or are they done out of home? Yeah, generally they're done in home and there's going to be several components to it because with EI, they, they don't want to just look at the communication. They're going to look at a, a bunch of different things such as their physical development, their fine motor skills, their growth motor skills and things such, such as that. And, and also just um, they're going to want to look at the home environment to make sure that their home situation is conducive to learning. So they're going to look at a bunch of different things, psychological, social, mm -hmm. um, communication, physical. So the EI doesn't really like, they focus on the, the whole, the whole, and as does, by the way, mm -hmm. when you get it through um, the school aid services and the district does it, they're going to look at the whole picture as well. And, you know, to, uh, again, to reassure parents who may be concerned or worried or um, 
kind of overwhelmed with that home-based model, there will be many opportunities for you as parents to, to give your feedback, to share your concerns, and to be the voice for your child. So you will be an integral part of the process from beginning to end, which I hopefully will give some parents some solace and some comfort that ultimately you have a say and the more knowledge and the more um, forthcoming you are with that, the better the evaluator, uh, the better picture the evaluator has and the more full detailed um, picture with which to work from. So the next part of that process is the evaluation. Then they have... Yeah, well, you know, this is a, a little bit about, like, there's a, the process. It's a little more that goes into it before the actual evaluation. Okay. So, yeah, so what will happen is the EI program will receive the referral, and then they'll contact the family to gather the family's concerns, just as you said, and general information about the child and um, determine the family's interest in scheduling a visit. And then there's going to be a service coordinator who will meet with the family okay. and like conduct kind of like a screening and explain what the eye is and what it does and determine. And then the family will see if they really do wish to have that child evaluated success. And if they do, then the parents will, like every step of the way, the parents then are held and then they'll be provided with and their, their rights, with their rights and, and their rights will be explained. And then the parents will give their written consent for the evaluation. And everything will be explained fully before, you know, they decide to go forward. And then once they go forward, after everything is carefully explained and discussed, and any concerns are addressed that the family might have, um, then then the um, the actual evaluation will occur. Well, and after well, first of all, they'll gather more information about the child and decide what areas of concern are, so they have the proper tests for that evaluation. And then the evaluation will the team will be a team that will be set up, including the speech pathologist, the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, the psychologist, and then that team will do their various components of the evaluation. Mm -hmm. And then um, once the evaluation is complete, then there, you mentioned a meeting. Can you share a little yeah. bit about how the meeting works and um, who's present at the meeting? Yeah. So for that child who needs services, there's going to be developed an IFSC if they, um, if they do need, indeed fulfill the requirements for services. Mm -hmm. It's an individual family service plan. So there's going to be a meeting, an individual family service plan meeting, an IFSC that takes place in order to decide what are the best what's the best course of action to take to help uh, the child what kind of services are warranted okay and and then after that a document will be written up which outlines the specific early intervention services that a child will receive okay and so the meeting is sort of the collective of everyone that's been involved in the process and whoever will be involved with the treatment course and the the plan of action that's 
Correct. Anyone who did any part of the evaluation, like I said, the speech language pathologist, um, the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, the psychologist, the educational specialist, they'd all be have to have their part in that meeting. They're say sometimes, you know, it's a lot of times it's taken uh, like over COVID, it would have been done, say, over Zoom or some kind of tele, um, uh, telehealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but generally it's in the office. I don't know exactly where for EI, but, you know, county, county Jordan, yeah. place. Yes. And so they would be present either by phone or in person and give their input as to what their, their findings were in the evaluation. And then once everyone gives their in- input, whether or not maybe they would qualify for the speech and language, but not qualify for physical therapy, their, their physical development is, is deemed appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, and generally speaking, you could have like one area. And, but some children have, you know, more and might even have two, three or four areas or even, you know, an extreme case of all areas. And they will get services in any and all areas and seem necessary to, to support that child. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, now, um, just something that sort of uh, came to light for me um, for as far as the meeting and the representation at the meeting, et cetera. What about homes and families where English is not their first language? Would there, would that parent or caregiver um, have access to like a bilingual person to help them through uh, the understanding of things? That was a very awkwardly worded question. I apologize in advance. but. <laughs> Would um, would someone be available to interpret that information for them in their um, in their language? Absolutely, that's also required by law. And not only that, if the child is being raised with another language as their as their primary language, it is required by law that those evaluations are administered in that language. So that, you know, you can see that whatever the results are, it's not just because of the language difference, it's because, you know, a true and language disorder, it doesn't say to say. And the parents are, um, uh, interpreters for those parents are also that's you know, provided by law. So, so that's really good to know. And uh, another thing is parents, I know with the, um, with the school aid services, there's also a parent advocate always present. At the meeting to help the, support the parent in any way, and I believe it's the same for early intervention. So not only are there the other representations such as uh, um, physical therapists, all those different areas that were evaluated, there's a person representing the parent, mm-hmm. so the parents also feel supported. Now that which is a very very important piece is the parent advocacy piece, and I've I found in my work with families that a lot of a lot of families that. Piece seems to not be uh, translating as effectively as it should, and it doesn't quite get through. Now, typically, since, again, you know, this is your world and your space, um, is the parent advocate chosen by the parent, or is the parent advocate sort of part of the package, for lack of a better word, with the other professionals who've been involved in the process? Can a parent choose who they would like? Um, that's... 
That's a good question. I was actually um, a parent advocate when my son was first identified and, and received services. They asked me to be a, a parent advocate, and then I had to go through a little training to do so. So I don't believe you could pick your parent advocate unless you knew one in the school district or you know look for someone who did that, okay. like I I did. Um, so it's provided for, but it's a parent whose child has gone through the whole process. Oh. So it's someone who, it, this parent advocate isn't just anybody that picks up. It's someone who actually has a child or has had a child who went through the whole early intervention or um, special services process. That That is absolutely beautiful because it really is, um, it's mama to mama. And it is someone who has walked the walk before you looking back to offer you their hand and help you through it. Um, this has been a really, really informative time with you. I, you know that I think the absolute world of you. I am fortunate enough to call you friend. You are my speech and energy guru. And I just, I cannot thank you enough for sharing. You've shared so many uh, pearls of wisdom and I truly hope that um, that this was a valuable uh, moment in time for families who may be looking ahead to this journey or at different points of the juncture now. Um, please know that we are here for you at mamaspost.com. And any questions that you might have... Um, We'll send them on to you, Debbie. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm here and wonderful. And, and I believe me, the feelings are mutual. I so appreciate you asking me to join me. And I really hope there's help from mamas out there. Yes. So let's continue the conversation. Thank you so much yeah, for uh, taking the time to uh, share your wisdom, your gifts, and your perspectives. And uh, have a great day, y'all.